0: For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com.
1: Hi, I'm Will Summer, and welcome to The Daily Beast's Fever Dreams. I'm a politics reporter at The Daily Beast. My book on QAnon, Trust the Plan, The Rise of QAnon, and the Conspiracy that Unhinged America, will be available in February and is available for pre-order now.
0: And I'm Kelly Weil. I am also a reporter at The Daily Beast, and I'm the author of the book Off the Edge, Flat Earthers, Conspiracy Culture, and Why People Will Believe Anything. On this
1: podcast, we're going to take you on plunges into the sometimes hilarious, sometimes scary fanatics infecting the way that millions of Americans view the world and how they vote.
0: Even in the aftermath of the Trump administration, the energy of these conspiracy theorists, grifters, and influencers is still pushing our mainstream political landscape closer and closer to a breaking point.
1: All right, welcome back to Fever Dreams. I'm Will Summer, joined as always by Kelly. Kelly, today we have a very special milestone to mark.
0: Yeah, it is our 100th birthday, so to speak. Our 100th podcast birthday. We made it. Woo! Woo! (laughs) <laughs> yeah, honestly, this is really wild. I think it's rare for a podcast to hit this. Shout out to he who we seldom name, Swin getting us this far. And it's been a wild ride.
1: Yeah, it's been quite a journey. Willard Scott is going to be putting our name up on the Today Show the <laughs> podcast name. Obviously, Swin, producer Jesse, long gone, Daily Beast editor Noah Shackman for bullying me into doing this and most importantly of all the listeners it's very cool to hear from people who enjoy the podcast and who tweet topics for us to discuss (laughs) which are often pretty good ideas
0: they are pretty
1: so just briefly up top we wanted to say thanks to everyone because producer jess informs us that only one percent of podcasts make it this far so we did it
0: oh we're not the 99 percent anymore we are now you're no longer populist overlords
1: we did it we did a podcast rich boys here
0: (laughs) Okay, Will, 100th podcast, not the only thing we're celebrating. We are one week out from the launch of your book. How you feeling?
1: Yes, I'm feeling good. Trust the plan, coming February 21st. It's available for pre-order now. What better way to celebrate the 100th episode of Fever Dreams than by buying my book?
0: <laughs> Buy 100 copies, 100th episode, 100 copies. Nice round number.
1: Look, if you're sitting here, you're like, I like Fever Dreams, but am I going to like Will's book, Trust the Plan, QAnon and the Conspiracy Theory that Deranged America or Unhinged America? Well, look, Booklist gave it a starred review. I think we should have some more positive reviews coming soon. Some excerpts are going to start coming out, ideally, relatively soon after you (laughs) listen to this week's pod. So check them out and I'll be posting about it on Twitter. I would also like to plug that I'll be March 3rd that weekend. I'll be at the Tucson Literary Festival, palling around. If you're in the Southwest, come through. Maybe we'll look at some cacti together. I've never been out there. So I'm looking forward to it. Phoenix plays a large role in the book, but I've not been to Tucson before. Overall, I think I'm very excited. And Kelly, of course, you have a book dropping as well.
0: Yeah, the paperback of my book, Off the Edge, coming out actually same day as yours. I'm excited. If you haven't picked up a hardcover of Off the Edge, now is your chance to get it a little bit cheaper.
1: I love it. I love it. We got to get a package deal going. A BOGO. So overall, lots of book news. So the news news. Kelly, what's going on in Congress?
0: Okay, so George Santos, media darling, has had all our attention with his very colorful and arguably completely false resume. But while we were paying attention to him, another maybe up-and-coming fabulous seems to have slipped under the radar. I'm talking about Anna Paulina Luna. She's a newly elected representative from Florida. And, you know, some elements of her backstory aren't making sense. There was a really good Washington Post story the other day. It dove into her kind of evolving claims about her backstory, including claims where she's described herself as Jewish, sort of like George Santos, but then had to clarify that it's more jew she says that she was raised by a Christian father who was a part of the Messianic Jewish movement. Now, for folks who don't know this, this is not a Jewish movement at all. These folks are Christians who are really bent on converting Jews. And some of her family say even that's dubious. Her dad's a Catholic.
1: So just to drill down here, I mean, you're Messianic Jew, you do your thing. But it is a little odd sort of like with Eliza Blue who we discussed last week I think this is someone who is sort of seems to be sort of deliberately vague about their background and enough that like it's kind of hard to catch them particularly like saying like well you said this and uh, this whatever but there's a lot of like hmm, going on here. And so I think the implication is that her father was Catholic, but then became a Messianic Jew, which is like truly the craziest stuff to me. Typically, I think these are Jewish people who should probably just convert to Christianity and they sort of split the difference. But the idea of like specifically becoming a Messianic Jew, I think recalls a lot of this like appropriation of like the shofar and all this stuff these various Christian sects get into. Kelly, I think you were leading up to kind of the big bombshell about the whole Jewish backstory.
0: Yeah, the hammer drop here is that her grandfather appears to have fought in the army for Nazi Germany. (laughs) Now, listen, I think they had a draft, but
1: I tweeted this out. You know, it's rough when you're kind of skimming a profile, kind of a critical profile. And it's like, all right, time to drag out the picture of her grandpa in the Nazi uniform.
0: (laughs) Yeah. When you see that sepia tone picture of an ancestor, you know, something bad is about to come.
1: Yeah, there's that. I mean, there's also the thing with her is right. So she has this background and there are kind of these questions about her. her ethnic background. Obviously, you mentioned the Jewish thing. Her name for a while was Meyerhofer, and then she adopted Luna as her name. Obviously, she's in Florida. And you know who's weirdly like the, what do they say, the eight or nine most hated words of the English language? Roger Stone was right you know what I mean that's (laughs) poor word but like because Roger Stone has been on the Anna Paulina backstory case for years and years because he had another favored candidate in this congressional district and so people like Roger Stone and sort of his minions have been trying to convince people like me at the Daily Beast to run these he's like oh Anna Paulina she claims to have been a waitress at a strip club but like they would darkly imply what else was going on there or that she had changed her name so this has been kind of a topic on the right for a while I think Post does a good job of nailing down a lot of this stuff and really really reaching Back and going beyond this conjecture, there's also this origin story that I think a lot of conservatives have, sort of an origin story. These politicians of like, I used to be a liberal, but X happened to me. Tell me about this, Kelly.
0: Yeah, so there's a saying like, "Oh, a liberal is just a conservative who hasn't been mugged yet." Well, she claims that her conservative turn came during this really frightening nighttime home invasion. Her life was at risk. And the Post talked to her roommates at the time and said, nah, that never happened. Someone did break into their house during the day, but no one was home. No one was at risk. I'm glad you brought up the Eliza Blue story from last week, because this is another case where "Mm, there's a nugget of something there, something bad did happen. But there's just been all this evolution of the story for what sounds like years and years. And it's at this point just not really lining up with the police record.
1: Right. So she claims this is sort of the moment that she got into the Second Amendment, which is then sort of how she became a a right-wing pundit because she was tweeting about the Second Amendment and then she got picked up by Charlie Kirk, who kind of made her a star. So basically, you kind of have to read the poster. It gets into the nitty-gritty here, but essentially, this idea that there was this home invasion. Her roommate at the time claims that, in fact, that this was a burglary. No one was home. There's these various accounts. I mean, the police report backs up the roommate's claim. Anna Polina has done, I would say, a pretty effective job in the aftermath of this story coming out, putting up enough sort of dirt on the post story that i think certainly people on the right are not going to treat her like george santos post had to make a couple minor corrections for example there was an issue with her voter registration where they claimed she'd registered i believe as a democrat but in fact this state has nonpartisan voter registration it's a whole thing i mean at the core i think there's a lot of interesting stuff in the post story but i think anna polina has done a, a really kind of done a full court press here pushing back on it
0: yeah absolutely i mean on the right you just need to throw up enough dirt to kind of obscure target and she's done enough of that george santos just is not savvy enough so that's the difference between the two of them. <laughs>
1: There's too much. I mean, it's he's like, oh, no, here's a text from a dog that I <laughs> did get <laughs> surgery for. He can't do that.
0: All right, Will, speaking of other intrepid journalism, you have done some digging on problems at the vaunted Project Veritas.
1: All right. This is the big enchilada of this week's episode. I'm excited about this. Okay. So last week... As we sat down to record the podcast, I was getting hearing rumbles that James O'Keefe, the prankster prince of right-wing media, was in trouble. Now, folks may remember him from his decade-plus of antics, and people would say, dirty tricks, as critics would say, dressing like a pimp taking down Acorn, all these undercover stings. So, but I would say over the past uh, two years or so, there have been a lot of signs at, of cracking up at Project Veritas, his nonprofit. I say nonprofit. I mean, it, they're not running a soup kitchen, right? I mean, these are the people who are, this is how he runs his undercover stings.
0: Yeah, this is a 501c3 for parking outside someone's house with a long distance camera.
1: Exactly, exactly. Right, I mean, this is the group that just a few weeks ago ambushed a New York Times reporter and I think pretty solidly got got owned by the reporter. I mean, this is not what we would think of typically as charity work. There have been some issues. And so in the lead up to what was what sort of this all culminated last week, but they did layoffs in December, roughly, I think, 10% of the staff. There's this FBI investigation. I mean, I'm saying like issues. It's kind of like maybe the biggest issues you can have. The FBI raided James O'Keefe's apartment, as well as the apartments of some of his other associates, over this alleged theft of Ashley Biden's diary, which was sold to Project Veritas and then leaked to another conservative outlet after they re- apparently refused to do anything with it. And so two people who were involved in the sale have pleaded guilty. So there's this ongoing FBI investigation. The, I sort of think they haven't been getting a lot of big scores. I mean, I think in January, they released this video, this Pfizer executive, who was construed in the video as saying that Pfizer was making viruses more deadly. That was a huge hit on the right. Before that, they were kind of thin on stuff. And the other thing that's going to become a recurring theme here in this segment is James O'Keefe's obsession with musical theater. Now, this is he was a musical theater guy in high school. And I think this is sort of the Rosetta Stone to understand.
0: You can always tell. Well,
1: once you learn that, you go... Huh, okay. Because think of his passion for costumes and characters. I mean, someone was saying to me, Oh, Will, you're punching down at theater kids.
0: Listen, if if theater kids start to make six figures or more, then I think I can punch up at them.
1: This idea that all these high school theater kids are like, Will said what? Oh, the like, show's off, guys. <laughs> so think about the characters. He loves Flair. But I mean, really, over the past few years, he's gotten really specifically into doing musical theater through Project Veritas. So they did this show called the Project Veritas Experience, where you would go and James O'Keefe would do all these musical numbers. So they did like to Prince's song Controversy, they did Oligarchy. And so you would be like, Are you Dem or GOP? <laughs> And James O'Keefe is wearing like a bulletproof vest that says press and he's doing kind of like spins and stuff and he's got all these backup dancers. And I guess I had just been so like a nerd to this that I had just seen this so many times that I was like, oh yeah, sure. It's the nonprofit that does musical numbers. This came out this week and everyone goes, what? This looks weird. And I guess it does. But wrapping up the musical theater thing, he did this performance of Oklahoma that was sort of with a canceled director famous for his sort of outlandish sets. But Project Veritas spent $20,000 basically relocating staff so that he could do this. And they had to admit that it was improper, improper use of their money. So there's all this stuff going on at Project Veritas. So Kelly, what happened last week?
0: Okay, so this is like a dinner theater running out of a charity news site, basically. And those, I think, would be normally workplace issues enough. I don't think I'd want to work someplace that conscripted me into a performance of Oklahoma, but it sounds like something hit a breaking point. Last week, what happened there?
1: Yeah, so two weeks ago, something's going down at Project Veritas. And I think, as we relate this story and what I think the causes of this might be, I think it's worth considering that I think there's still something we aren't seeing. But basically, James O'Keefe fired two executives who it seems were sort of either somehow got crosswise with him. And so he fired them. This was seen as by the board as like James O'Keefe was really running amok. And so last week, the board met. And as they met, roughly a third of Project Veritas's employees delivered a memo to them complaining about James O'Keefe managerial style. Now, We've seen some evidence of this in the past. There's a lawsuit from a former employee claiming that James O'Keefe pulled up porn on his computer at work, that this was like a really sexually charged and raucous workplace. Someone had a drug overdose at a company apartment, it alleges. I got to say here, Project Veritas denies all this. But so this stuff had kind of leaked out in the past, but this memo, which we have a story about on the Daily Beast, I think really gets into this. And these are people who I think are true believers, I think it's fair to say, who are saying like, look, James is really alienating all our donors. They claim that he's saying everyone, when you meet him, he's like, look, we need a five or six figure check from you. He's really badgering these donors that he left one donor's wife near tears because I guess he was rude to her. But I guess more importantly that he supposedly treats staff really poorly. I mean, I would say, first of all, the various stories I hear about right wing media bosses do not suggest that it is always a great place to work. But I think the idea that these people who probably often are like, oh, I hate snowflakes, that they're resorting to some sort of collective action suggests to me that this is a really extreme situation. They say James subjects people to, quote, public crucifixion. If he doesn't like what they say. I mean, he really is in this memo. He's portrayed as this really horrible boss. At one point, they had this civil trial last year. And he allegedly was, he was really angry about something. Because he was hungry. And he was so hungry. I will say, this anecdote doesn't really get into details. But he, they claim he took a sandwich from an eight-month pregnant woman. I mean... <laughs> and I will say, James O'Keefe's defenders have since dressed this up as like, Oh, yeah, so what? So he took a sandwich.
0: Listen, we don't do handouts here if that pregnant woman wants a sandwich, she needs to fight for it.
1: Exactly, exactly. Okay, so this memo is delivered. The board reinstates these executives. James is put on paid leave. I'm kind of being specific here, but it's a little unclear. This memo goes out where it says, okay, everyone, this guy's back and this guy's back. And James is on some well-deserved vacation. <laughs> so it's a little unclear how, how much arm twisting was involved to get him to go on vacation. But then, so New York Magazine first reports this, then we report more on the memo on Tuesday, I believe. And so this sets off a firestorm on the right keep in mind james o'keefe himself is being like totally quiet during all this but all of the kind of People you would expect, Benny Johnson, Jack Posobiec, I think Gorka maybe weighed in. I mean, really, basically every right-wing pundit out there gets at Lara Logan, and they say, Project Veritas is James O'Keefe. They can't try to get rid of this guy. And I would tend to agree with them that Project Veritas doesn't really exist without James O'Keefe. But And that makes me think that there's something else going on here, because this board, these are not George Soros appointees, right? I mean, these are... Right wingers themselves, this board includes a guy named Matt Tiermond, who is a sort of longtime O'Keefe slash Bannon acolyte slash Bolsonaro fan. These are pretty dyed in the wool right wingers. And so that they had to step in here to me that like something pretty serious was going on, probably above the sandwich issue. And so so all these people are like, oh, we hate Project Veritas now, whatever. Then on Friday, there was a board meeting that sort of doesn't seem to have resolved anything. It, it, as far as I can tell from my sources, it keeps so kind of up in the air. Project Veritas is in chaos. It's a very confusing situation. Kelly, what do you make of all this?
0: I mean, there's a lot of parallels here to InfoWars, right? We know there's a ton of dissent inside InfoWars. People are leaking videos of Alex Jones walking around and drinking. But it's really hard to separate that brand name from its leader. It's hard to separate InfoWars from Alex Jones, Project veritas from James O'Keefe. And I think they are probably right to a degree that remove James O'Keefe from this media outlet, kind of, it takes away its figurehead, right? But I think that also speaks to the lack of substantive journalism going on there. If it can't survive without its mascot, well, I'm not really sure what exactly they were doing right. So I think for them to even mull something like putting this guy on paid leave, they know it looks bad that does speak to some pretty significant issues under the surface there. And I'm I'm really curious to see what comes out because these folks do have a tendency to leak on each other.
1: Yeah. So this is what we're entering what I call the cool zone, right? Because (laughs) we should be approaching the point where the board, if I'm them, because this board now is being painted as all these liberal shills. If I'm the board, I start leaking on O'Keefe to say, hey, guys, no, actually, here's why we did this. Not that we're all liberals. It's that like we had no choice. So far, that hasn't really happened, at least in terms of there hasn't been like any secretly recorded audio. The other thing to keep in mind here, right, is that all these people literally are experts at secretly recording audio and video. And so I think that's kind of the wild card here. A couple more things on this. So a lot of the pro O'Keefe side is being laundered through the founder of the website Old row which people may be familiar with it's sort of like a college themed barstool sports it's like you're the hottest girls of tuscaloosa and so for some reason this guy's linked up with o'keefe and he has been putting out this narrative that the board all this kind of supposed inside stuff on the board but he's now been championing some of project Veritas's donors sent a cease and desist to the board and they said if you don't let james o'keefe do whatever you want you are in violation of nonprofit law now i'm no lawyer but i don't think the point of boards it's like you are required to let him do musicals and whatever he wants. You don't interfere at all. This letter has become like a big, oh, we're so excited about this thing on the right. The final thing I would say is that there's an interesting Ron DeSantis angle, which is we're starting to see, separate from this, we're starting to see some more MAGA figures, particularly this was around the RNC chairman race. We're starting to see more of them really sort of specifically say, like, I am with DeSantis, I am done with Trump. And a lot of these people are based in Florida, and a lot of them are people who, coincidentally or not, have been hosted at the governor's mansion. Our colleague Jake LaHutt at the Daily Beast had a story about Ron DeSantis recruiting some of these influencers. But basically, they're people like John Cardillo, who is currently under, facing a lawsuit over an arms deal that went south in Ukraine. These various guys. And so, and, and there's sort of varying degrees of DeSantis devotee. But what we're seeing is the the other side, the real MAGA Trump people, are kind of trying to put DeSantis in the jackpot here. And so they're seeing a cause that is very unpopular on the right which is to say getting rid of James O'Keefe and they're saying well Ron DeSantis's people are behind this and it's kind of some tortured logic but they have like some pictures of someone like Matt Tierman this board member or John Cardillo with another board member or whatever and they're saying the DeSantis people are just trying to get rid of James O'Keefe and loot the treasury i mean it, these stories don't make any sense but they are getting some traction and, and i think they're like weirdly i don't think it really matter in any way but like we're sort of seeing this as a first flashpoint in an attempt to really slime DeSantis
0: Absolutely. I think the only solution is they get together and solve this through the power of dance.
1: I'd have to hand it over to James. I think he would have the advantage there. So this is certainly something we'll be watching. Like I said, I think there's a lot more to come. And it's very bizarre to see really one of the rights most important. It's weird to call it, They're not really per se a media outlet, but sort of really one of the right wing media's biggest like institutions really just sort of tearing itself apart over this.
0: Right. I mean, I think fundamentally, a lot of these people are just bad bosses, right? They rise to the top, not because they're good managers or they're savvy media operatives, but because they're a little bit weird, a little bit willing to do kind of mean things that most folks won't, and after a certain point, there's diminishing returns. And yeah, you start alienating people when you steal a pregnant woman's sandwich allegedly, and so it's not really a surprise that this does seem to continually happen to the James O'Keefe's and the Alex Joneses of the world.
1: Okay, so Kelly, we have obviously we're talking about Donald Trump and Ron DeSantis, but we have a couple more people who might be competing for the Republican nomination. Who's throwing their hat in the ring?
0: All right, so we. Have have the next slate of also rams are starting to come out. We have Nikki Haley. She's a <laughs> former U.N. ambassador under Trump. She announced today, Tuesday, that she is officially running for president. We're also seeing rumblings from some other folks. Tim Scott, Republican senator from South Carolina. We're seeing talk from Vivek Ramaswamy. He, if anyone knows him, is the author of a book about taking down the woke ink. So we're getting a lot of kind of C tier conservative figures. And I don't think anyone is really, really getting hyped for Nikki Haley run. And I don't think Trump is too worried about this either. You look at some early reporting out of the Nikki Haley campaign, and Trump is sort of like nagging her by saying, yeah, it's totally fine if she runs. He even said, I talked to her for a little while and said, look, you go by your heart if you want to run. I said, you should do it. So that's not really the voice of a Trump who's too concerned about a Nikki Haley candidacy.
1: He was harsher towards Rihanna's halftime show performance than he was to Nikki Haley running (laughs) for president.
0: (laughs) Absolutely. You do have to wonder how many of these candidates are actually just running for a spot in the prospective Trump 2024 cabinet or something. Tim Scott, I love him because he accidentally appears to have like leaked his presidential ambitions last August when he launched his book. There was a blurb about it saying that it was a political memoir about his core messages as he prepares to make a presidential bid in 2022. His publisher had to go back and say, well, we didn't mean that. That was an error. We didn't mean to have anything about a presidential bid on there. So, listen, are they sending their best? Not necessarily. Of course, we know that a lot of the speculation revolves around Ron DeSantis, or as Trump is calling him, Meatball Ron. I like this. This is good.
1: I like this Meatball Ron. It's pretty like explicitly anti Italian, but.
0: <laughs> yeah. It kind of is, but I like that we're witnessing the real-time evolution of a Trump insult, right? So he was starting with something like Ron DeSanctimonious, which gotta say, mm, two out of ten, no good, too long, doesn't stick. Meatball Ron, for all its anti-Italian implications, I think is a really promising contender. It's just got that sauce, so to speak. And, Will, meatball slurs aside, Trump has really been going in on Ron DeSantis. He recently had a truth social tear where he suggested that Ron 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 DeSantis is maybe a groomer. Can you tell me what those posts were?
1: Yeah. So this pulled from a sort of long forgotten article on hillreporter.com, which is a website founded by the Krasenstein brothers, the famously liberal Krasensteins.
0: We love the FBI.
1: (laughs) This article is basically this idea that Ron DeSantis as a high school teacher partied with high school students. Now, it's a little unclear what what exactly party means, and I don't think the allegations really go beyond further than that. That said, there's this picture of him and these young women who are implied to be in high school. And so Trump retweets some of his fans who are talking about this, and he does this thing that's very popular sort of among right-wing influencers. When something is so obviously untrue, or at least as far as we can tell, you don't say like, wow, Ron DeSantis is a groomer, but Trump goes like, wow could this be true? Or he says, is this real? Or I think he says like, Ron, do you think really? And so basically, yeah, as you said, he's implying that DeSantis is a pedo to cut straight to it. And he's really throwing it out there. I think Fever Dream's I think has been bearish on DeSantis's primary chances. The fact that DeSantis is kind of, he's avoiding this, I mean, the great challenge here is anyone facing Trump is that Trump gets a lot more latitude to be really rude to people and, and throw these smears in a way that if DeSantis was like, oh yeah, well I hear you're a pedo, you're this evidence, I think it wouldn't look so great for him. So we've got that and then we have this guy who I find to be maybe the most interesting guy in terms of flavors of the week. <laughs> this guy's interesting. Vivek Ramaswamy. Tell me about this guy, Kelly. So
0: this is something Someone, he's not a politician. I'm sure he'd be very happy to tell you that he's an author. He comes out of the sort of think tank world where he's railing against wokeness in corporations. And he's posed himself as this populist, but within the corporate world. He says he had this, he worked in business and his elite educated peers would say something unwoke in private, but would be very equitable in public. And he feels like that's hypocritical. This is a very common right-wing talking point. But Rumsfeldt, is positioning himself as one of these, these truth speakers, right? I think he has a lot of maybe Andrew Yang vibes to this effect, right?
1: Yeah, he's kind of like an alternate universe Andrew Yang because, I mean, he's this guy who's kind of like, I'm an entrepreneur and I've just got, all oh, politicians, we got to forget these guys. I got big ideas.
0: Yeah, absolutely. Right. He's sort of the industry guy who's going to import his ideas into politics. He's been hitting the ground in Iowa where he's been using. He likes to have all these corporate metaphors. He had a great tortured metaphor that he told a crowd recently. He said, we were taught that if you satisfy a moral hunger by going to Ben and Jerry's and order a cup of ice cream with some social justice sprinkles. Now, of course, this is the right not liking Ben and Jerry's because they're like a nominally liberal ice cream company. And he's saying, we are not going to satisfy our moral hunger with fast food. So he's a thinking man's candidate, right? He's mad at woke company and he's going to bring some truth telling into the arena. I I don't think he's any kind of real contender, but he's someone who's getting his name out there, will probably have a moderately successful podcast in four years time. And this is a good (laughs) launching pad for him.
1: I think that's right. I mean, he's the backstory here is, I mean, this, this is a super rich guy and he's emerged. He's kind of the voice against woke capital. And so he has this book called Woke Inc. And he's the big critic of environmental and social corporate governance, which is ESG, which is this idea that these investment funds are not just caring about returns, but but things also things like global warming. And this has become a, a big issue on the right. You have these red states divesting from pension funds and stuff like this because they, for example, are trying not to invest in fossil fuels. So this is a guy who who's had a lot of appearances on cable news as sort of the businessman who's blowing the whistle on ESG. But you know, for a guy who talks so much about ideas. So the fascinating thing with Andrew Yang was that he actually had a lot of ideas, a bit too many, perhaps. He was a guy who, obviously, I think a lot of these outsiders say, well, I have a lot of ideas. And then you say, It's like, oh, my idea is government work good. But Andrew Yang would say things like, we're going to have a tax to support newspapers and briefly his anti-circumcision policy, which which I had the pleasure of interviewing him about. (laughs) But this guy, okay, so here's how this Politico story from Daniel Littman, which which sort of broke the news of Ramaswamy's presidential ambitions. So here's what it says. He's already fashioned a policy platform, defeating China economically. Pretty vague there. Firing the managerial class of the federal government. Now, this is a very like Thelian slash new right idea, which is read gut the bureaucracy and install our guys.
0: Yeah, they don't like the professional managerial class, which is, it's a little on the nose because many of them are actually managers, but they're talking about the other kind of manager.
1: <laughs> Drastically changing or shutting down large numbers of federal agencies. I got to say, I mean, this is all just, this is normal Republican stuff. All right, reforming national security apparatus. All right, whatever. And shutting affirmative action. I mean, this guy is, this guy might as well be in the Freedom Caucus. Like, I mean, this is the, the usual stuff. So nevertheless, I do think this is an interesting character to watch. He will receive 0.5% of the vote in. I. Iowa, a go away. But I think you're right. I mean, this is when you want to, this guy also maybe sort of has like some Pete Buttigieg vibes to me, kind of like a technocrat and very much, I think, like Nikki Haley scheming for a position, I think, in a cabinet more than actually being president.
0: Maybe he can form the other side of the Andrew Yang forward party after this, but someone who's got his eye in the future, but not necessarily a future in the White House.
1: I think that's right. Overall, I have to say, as we close this segment, getting a little more action than I thought we would. The guy guy's an interesting character. I think Nikki Haley's doomed run should be interesting to watch so i'm glad it's shape enough to be a little more than desantis versus trump just as an observer of these things i think we're already starting to see some griping from the donors who recognize that Donald Trump is probably not as competitive a candidate as Ron DeSantis and the general who are saying like, no, if everyone runs, you're going to split the vote. and Trump's going to win again. But sometimes that's how the cookie crumbles, folks.
0: Absolutely. Look forward to the backstabbing and the infighting. And yeah, keep it coming for the next year and a half.
1: (laughs) Okay, Kelly, who do we have on the podcast this week?
0: Our guest this week is Kim Kelly. She's the author of Fight Like Hell, The Untold History of American Labor. She's been following the far right for years while covering a really interesting range of topics ranging from the heavy metal scene to the labor movement. So we're excited to talk to her and see what she's up to. you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com/slash host. Fevered dreams, like all Daily Beast journalism, exist because of the generous support of our subscribers, the people who pay for access to Daily Beast reporting and who are, quite frankly, our favorite people on the face of the planet.
1: Want to get in on all the action? Join now and get unlimited access to Beast reporting, exclusive ad-free newsletters, and our undying appreciation.
0: Head to feverdreams.thedailybeast.com to sign up. All right, we are joined by Kim Kelly, author of the book Fight Like Hell. Kim, how's it going? Well, before we started
2: recording, we were talking about the Eagles, and I live in Philadelphia, so it could be better, but it could probably be worse. It could have been the Cowboys.
0: (laughs) Well, I'm very sorry for your loss, but I'm really stoked to talk to you today about just kind of the range of cool stuff you cover from labor to heavy metal, and I did want to start off talking about your background as a metal journalist and your writing on the metal scene has kind of worked in parallel to your coverage of the far right. And I was wondering if these two topics are linked in your mind. Did one lead to the other as you were carving out your path as a journalist?
2: Yeah, absolutely. The thing that the world needs to understand about heavy metal is that A, it is the best and B, we have a lot of Nazis. And those two things do not sound like they should exist within the same subculture and musical genre. And yet here we are because metal is complicated. (laughs) Yeah, I'm stoked to talk about this kind of thing. I suppose I am better known now in like the wider realm of media or what have you as a labor reporter, as someone who yells about unions all the time. But I've been a heavy metal journalist, critic, whatever, for like basically my entire life, like since I was 15. So that's what I feel like that's who I am. I just happen to have taken a hard pivot in the past five or six years. And it's funny that people don't necessarily even know about that part of my work or my life until they see me. or like, oh, you have like a lot of satanic goat tattoos. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, in terms of covering metal and kind of covering the far right, it sort of became... I'm trying to think of like a good way to word it. Like metal came first, like just metal, just head empty, no thoughts, no politics, just riffs forever. And then as I grew up, got older, learned more about politics, met more people, left my super rural area where I grew up. And I kind of became pretty cognizant of like, okay, we have some issues, right? At first I realized, okay, there's an issue with women and girls, because as a teenage girl at the metal show, this isn't going great. Then I realized, OK, obviously there's issues here with racism, anti-Semitism, homophobia. This thing that I love, this culture that means so much to me, that I've grown up in, has a lot of problems. And by the time I figured out there were Nazis running around, I was like, someone should do something about this, right? As a writer, I found myself kind of pivoting, an earlier pivot, pivoting towards writing specifically about women and people of color and queer folks and metal And about why it sucks that there are some bands and some labels and some parts of the scene that allow that. And I suppose I sort of became known as this loudmouth feminist SJW. That was like pre-Antifa panic in the metal world. And that was just kind of the focus my work started taking. And it's hard to write about metal in any real depth, especially in some of the subgenres like black metal, which is one of its most complex politically and otherwise, without running into these hard questions of like, okay, well, this band was on a label with this band and they're Nazis, but this band isn't actively... Part of the far right, but like maybe they are, but their label or like this one guy or the drummer put out split like there's a lot of research you have to do in order to really understand who and what you're supporting and listening to and having that, I suppose, comfort level with digging into people's side projects and posts and paths to figure out what was going on. That translated really well into figuring out what Nazis and other fascists were up to, especially because there is such a deep and unsettling connection between those two worlds. When you look at things like operation werewolf or just some of the leaders of various far right movements that have ended up at metal shows, like it's our problem too And I suppose once I figured that out, once that lightning bolt struck me, there's really no way to separate the art from the artist, right? Like To separate the fact that I love metal and I'm writing about metal and I know a little bit about metal by now. And the fact that we have this cancerous aspect of our community. Yeah, it's complicated,
0: man. (laughs) So little anecdote here. It was uh, back a few years ago and you were holding a metal festival in Brooklyn. And I'm like, I'll show up, I'll support. And me not being a metalhead at all, I show up in like light wash jeans, One of the most embarrassing situations I've ever been in, being the person not wearing all black at a metal festival, won't ever do that again. But I thought that place was, that festival was really interesting because it was about pushing back on the far right in the metal scene. And I was hoping you could tell me just a little bit more about how a community, a fairly small community can resist against far right elements in it.
2: That was 2019. It was Black Flags Over Brooklyn, an anti-fascist metal festival, a couple of buttons and I put together. And then, yeah, it was explicitly advertised and organized and held as an anti-fascist, anti-racist, deeply inclusive event. Like most of the bands playing were either people of color, they're queer, they're trans, they're women. Like it, it did not look like a typical extreme metal show but it was awesome and it just kind of showed like you don't have to give in to platforming garbage bands just because like there are plenty of other good bands out there that deserve our support and i was really really happy that i got to do that i'm really happy it went well and i think it just showed that we can take these spaces back you don't have to see ground to the far right we don't have to let the nazis into our shows i mean punks and skinheads in the 80s really figured it out way before metal did like oh there's nazis coming to our shows let's beat them up and then they'll stop and i'm sure there's other ways to approach that issue you can do that and i think that's fine but or you can just create very intentional spaces and be very obvious about who you want to support who you don't want to support i mean there's been over the past few years really the past five years especially, I would say there's been a big movement in the extreme metal world of more, like more explicitly anti-fascist, lefty, queer trans bands who are getting support, who are getting out there, who are getting signed to labels. And on the flip side, like there have been a lot of bands who have garbage politics who aren't getting the support they used to get, or getting their shows or their tours canceled, who are getting dropped from their labels. Like there has been a real groundswell of effort in the metal community to clean up our own backyard a little bit. And it just shows that it's possible. It's worthwhile. It's doable. It's just hard and it can be awkward. And sometimes you have to throw out some of your records and sometimes you have to stop talking to some of your homies, but ultimately it's worth it because if metal is going to be something that is accessible to everyone, not in like a Anybody could pick up a record and be like, oh, great, this is just as easy to listen to as Rihanna or whatever. But just in terms of no one except a Nazi can show up at a metal show and feel like I don't belong. That's the goal. Like, it's the best thing in the world everybody who doesn't suck should be able to walk into a metal show and think, oh, cool, I belong here too.
1: So Kim, moving on to your labor reporting, you're the author of Fight Like Hell, The Untold History of American Labor. What is the state of the labor movement in the United States? I realize that's a pretty broad question, but just sort of for someone who's on the ground covering it, what sort of actions and developments are you keeping an eye on?
2: There's so much happening. You can kind of pick your struggle at this point, pick your industry. If you're interested in what academic workers, grad students are up to, Student, there are grad student workers at Temple and North Philly on strike right now. If you're interested in the tech world and in fighting back against that whole realm, Tesla workers, I can't remember exactly where, but they just filed to unionize today. There's a coal miner strike in Alabama. There are Teamsters everywhere doing what Teamsters do. The United Auto Workers were the stored industrial union. They're in the middle of this bitter reform fight to try and elect someone who isn't stuck into that decades-old hierarchy and trying to bring in some new life into their part of the movement. There's really so much happening. We see the numbers of public support 71% highest since the 60s. We see that we have, at least on paper, and in some ways in actuality, this very pro-labor administration that is at the very least making things a lot easier than they were back when we had that other guy in here. Now There's a lot of room to grow, a lot of opportunity, still a lot of red tape, a lot of bullshit, a lot of rickety jacked up labor laws that don't help the people they need to be helping. There's still so many problems. We still have so much to push through to get even a tiny bit closer to the kind of working class liberation we deserve. But it's a really exciting moment. And I am just stoked that I get to be part of helping to tell that story and amplifying workers' voices and putting out the idea that unions really are for everyone, except cops, because fuck the cops.
0: So you kicked it that previous president we had. And what's interesting is the right likes to kind of position itself as this friend of blue collar workers. Right. But my read is that the relationship with unions is a bit more complicated than that. So what's the rights deal? With labor unions, they
2: like to prop up certain kinds of union workers and use them as political pawns or as backdrops to photo opportunities. Think about all the times Trump put on a hard hat and stood around next to some people who've actually worn Carhartt and pretended to be a big man's man, working man. But the proof is in the pudding. As an example, I can point to a story I've been covering for God, almost two years now. There are hundreds of coal miners on strike right now in rural Alabama. It's a multiracial, multigender workplace, but it is a predominantly Christian or conservative, rural, blue collar, red state, whatever kind of vibe. Like a lot of those folks voted for Trump. A lot of those folks vote for Republicans. Though so that might change after the strike. But there's been no support whatsoever from Republican politicians, from Republican conservative media, from their own state. Officials who are all Republicans. So, and these are coal miners. Like, these are the kind of archetypal blue collar worker that Republicans and conservatives like to prop up as real Americans, real workers. And they've completely abandoned them because those workers are on strike for their labor union. They don't want to give up their union. They know that history means something to them. And that just says so much about the way that Republicans and conservatives try and cosplay. As blue collar understanders or working class knowers, but are really just a bunch of soft handed suits that will never actually show up when workers need them. They just want to use us as pawns. And I hope that more people sort of start to understand that because the Democrats aren't very good at looking tough or cool. (laughs) And they have this sort of out of touch elite, whatever stank on them. But someone has to show up for the workers, and if it's neither of those guys, then we're in—well, we're still in hot water. We've been in hot water for mad long, but whatever. I could go on about that for a long time. But all that to say is Republicans are full of shit when they pretend to care about blue-collar workers. I am always here to call them out when I have the opportunity to do so.
0: So, you talk about this idea that coal miners are the real working man's workers. One thing that I've noticed in a parallel labor issue going on right now, which is the efforts by Starbucks workers to unionize, the right loves to denigrate those workers. And I see these tweets all the time. They'll have a picture of a barista. It's almost always a woman, often a woman of color. They're being like, is this someone who really needs a union? And I was wondering if you could speak to this effort to, sort of divide union work in between this stereotypical men in hard hats camp and stuff that women do.
2: This has been a be in my bonnet and many other bonnets for a really long time because it's such a transparent and cynical ploy that people in power use to try and divide workers. This is something that I get into this in my book a lot, but just in general, going back throughout the centuries before it was okay, well, black and white workers, black workers don't deserve a union because. This, that and the other reason that we have decided upon, that it was different types of immigrants, Then it was brown workers, specifically workers from Latin America and Mexico, South America. And it's always been women. There's always been this effort to try and act as though occupations that are predominantly held by women and non-male people are just not as hard. They don't count. You don't need a union. You should have a husband. Whatever noxious 1950s era bullshit that they're still trying to convince people is actually viable. I mean, we, when you talk about the Starbucks workers, it's the same kind of ire that I see directed at grad students, at striking academic workers or at nonprofit workers, journalists, media workers, anybody who, whose occupation doesn't fall into that very narrow, okay, factory worker, coal miner person in a hard hat who has bad political opinions, if you don't fall into that very, very small slice of existence, it's as though your labor doesn't count. And obviously that's nonsense. Every worker needs a union. If you have a boss, you need a union because you're probably getting screwed. And the only way you can fix it is by organizing collectively. I think there's a very real reason that that kind of anti-worker line is being pushed because if more workers realize that they do have access to unions and do have the ability to organize they'll do it and that will cause problems for the powerful people that are interested in keeping them down and profiting off their labor it's like honestly it's a scam and right-wing idiots like to cling to any vague culture war thing they can think of so being like oh a pink-haired librarian or starbucks barista they don't deserve rights Like, that's what they're saying when they say these workers don't deserve a union. You don't deserve rights. They just found a way, a slightly more clever way to say it that won't get them yelled at quite as much. But that's what they're saying. And that's what the issue is. So, Kim, we talked
1: earlier on the episode about the East Palestine train derailment. I'm seeing a lot of chatter sort of relating this, maybe not this incident in particular, but to the threatened train workers strike and their safety concerns. Can you, I mean, I feel like there were a lot of different things out there about like what this threatened strike was about. As a labor reporter, can you sort of drill down on that and the current status of that and whether this might have played a role in this derailment?
2: I mean, I've seen real workers saying we warned you, we told you something of this could happen. Because when they were trying to bargain for those contracts and they were threatening to strike, it wasn't just over money. It wasn't just over sick pay, though that was a huge part and a very important part that kind of got left by the wayside because the government was too scared of workers actually (laughs) enacting any kind of economic impact that they need. Captain, But one of the big issues that the workers were concerned about, that they're screaming about, is safety, is an understaffing, is on the fact that the folks who are working on these trains, who are pulling these long shifts, they don't have what they need to do that safely because these massive corporations masquerading as modern-day rail barons, they cut the workforce down. They rely, on these sort of it's hard to explain, and I forgot the actual name, these kind of algorithmic almost systems to try and make things more efficient. More efficient doesn't mean safer or better or smarter. It just means someone somewhere is saving a buck. and play the fact that we're seeing so many rail workers and rail workers unions speak up after this horrific tragedy saying, we told you we told you something that this could happen if safety isn't a paramount aspect of what you're doing. I think it just goes to show that maybe folks would have listened a little bit more if the workers hadn't had the federal government shove a contract down their throats and force them back to work. It's almost as if the people who do the jobs and spend time in that environment know better than the people that sit in offices in Washington and pick their noses. But what do I know about all of that?
0: So, Kim, you've been really close to the activist community for a while and One thing I recall is back in 2017, Unite the Right in Charlottesville, you were actually there in that crowd that a neo-Nazi drove a car into. And I'm wondering, surviving an event like that, does that shape your coverage as a journalist looking at the far right? Yeah, I mean, that kind of changed everything.
2: Definitely broke my brain. You gotta laugh, right? But yeah, I was not only in the crowd, I was like three feet away from the car and I got a front row view of Heather Heyer's death. And I had friends who were pulled under the car and friends who were grievously injured during that moment. I just happened to jump at the right moment. And so going into that and coming out of that and being lucky enough to come out of that physically unscathed, it just sort of, it washed away any remaining fear or trepidation I had about being loud and public about saying, yes, I'm an anti-fascist. I'm an anarchist. This is who I am. This is what I believe. This is what, we're fighting for. Because when you work within the media ecosystem, especially at the time I was working at Vice, which is like, not exactly the Wall Street Journal, right? But it was still a moment where I I was thinking to myself, I'm not sure how public I want to be about my involvement in this world and about my actual political views. But after that, I was like, well, Nazi just tried to murder me to a bunch of my friends. There's not really... What am I afraid of now? Being part of the anti-fascist world has been such an important aspect of my life for so long. Like, all my best friends are anti-fascist. I met my boyfriend at Occupy Ice. It's just an important part of who I am, and I bring that into my reporting and in the way that, especially given the fact that I write predominantly about labor issues now, There are ways that you can bring that energy into that world. I would say specifically about the way I talk about the presence of police within the labor movement. It's funny to be this like tattooed heavy metal anarchist who somehow is semi-respectable now. And I encounter people that don't necessarily know my deal. and don't know what my guillotine tattoo means or know where I was in August 2017. And sometimes I tell them, sometimes I don't. But I always have that in the back of my mind when I'm deciding what to cover, who to talk to, how to approach things, because that's not something you can forget. And you can't let yourself forget that. And you can't forget who the enemy is and who we're fighting for, no matter how you are using your energy, whether you're writing about anarchist black metal or writing about how cops have no place in the labor movement or writing about whatever other nonsense you can trick an editor into letting you write about that freelance you know how that hustle goes it's entwined in my dna now and i think it's part of why i probably will never really get a job at, the, at like the wall street journal or Politico, or whatever because that's not something i'm ever going to silence and i'm never going to pretend to be objective because i know which side i'm on
1: great well kim before we let you go i've never really headbanged myself what's a good <laughs> intro to the metal scene
2: oh good lord well it depends on the kind of music you like i'm a firm believer that there is a metal band for everyone
1: i like the hold steady the mountain goats
2: (laughs) (laughs) okay well you know what i'm just gonna throw it out there because it seems like i appreciate melody and intricate lyrical themes maybe the heavier stuff will come with it there's a band called fall of afrafra i'll send it to you fall of afrafra they're like kind of a neocrust band and that doesn't make sense when i just say it like that but it trust me it's real um, or since i've been talking a lot about anarchist stuff and about black metal one of my favorite bands is dawn raid from the uk they're an anti-fascist anarchist black metal band and their new record has a lot of really pretty folk influenced parts like there's a violin like it's If you wanted to get into black metal or anti-fascist metal in general, that would be a great gateway because you can figure out what speaks to you and kind of follow, follow your nose from there. And then there's always like Black Sabbath if you just want to turn your brain off, which in this economy, why wouldn't you?
1: Great. Well, thank you. Listening to you talk here, I realized that this was kind of a blind spot for me. Well, again, we've been joined by Kim Kelly. She's a labor reporter and she's the author of Fight Like Hell, The Untold History of American Labor. Kim, thank you so much for joining us.
2: Thank you for having me. The paperback comes out on August 29th and I'm extremely online. I'm always around. Just keep an eye out.
1: All right. Graham Kim on Twitter as well. Okay, Kim, thank you.
0: right and now it is time for fresh hell where we tell you the thing that no one is actually talking about will can you tell me how no one is talking about the train derailment in east palestine ohio
1: okay so february 3rd there was this train derailment in east palestine ohio people may have seen the news about this it has resulted in this toxic cloud that really looks awful and so this seems like a horrible environmental situation what i think is interesting here and we got a couple listener requests to talk about this because People were wondering, I mean, why so many right wingers seem to really be focusing on this and suggesting that there's something a tad more nefarious at play. Because I think if you look at the the sort of the conservative playbook of 20 years, this idea of giant corporation spills chemicals everywhere would not become a Republican cause celeb, right? But In fact, this one has. And so I think there's a couple things at play here. I think the most obvious is this is being used as sort of a cudgel on Pete Buttigieg, which, I mean, obviously, I don't know how fair that is. But, I mean, he is the Secretary of Transportation, so it's kind of a pretty typical political move there. I think there's some more interesting aspects. One is this idea that the balloons, everyone loves the balloons, we're hearing so much about them and the UFOs, that... You might think the UFOs would be plenty of material for conspiracy theorists if you were so inclined to think about, but it sort of seems like they're not that into the balloon. Is this the sense you're getting as well, Kelly?
0: Yeah, this is so interesting, right? Because you and I both have books about conspiracy theories and when people think about a typical conspiracy theory, they think about moon landing, UFOs, aliens and everything. That doesn't really seem to uh, wet the palette anymore. Now the UFOs or unidentified balloons are actually being posed as a front for a real conspiracy. People are saying that everyone is focused on these balloons, which in many cases seem honestly to be weather balloons it's still developing. They're actually to cover up for something, maybe the derailment in Ohio. And this isn't just like a couple of wingnuts suggesting this. Marjorie Taylor Greene tweeted this weekend, she's saying she tweeted, East Palestine, Ohio is undergoing an ecological disaster because authorities blew up the train derailment cars. She says, oh, but UFOs, what is going on? Edward Snowden advanced different theory that the balloons were a distraction for another cause of his. And it is interesting that... We have something that's kind of an event. Interesting balloons you know, could be enough to get conspiracy theorists of old talking about aliens. But in this case, it's actually a front for something else.
1: Yeah. I mean, I think the reason the balloons have failed to catch on beyond shoot them down, shoot the first one down, and then it gets shot down. And they go, oh, OK. Is there's not really a political valence to it, at least one that can be exploited, really, because Biden's shooting down the balloons. So they can't do much with that. But what you can do is something that I think we're seeing more and more of over the past few years, which is, oh, you think that thing in the news is important? That's just a distraction, you simpleton. (laughs) And we see this summed up in a meme that's very popular with the odd which is what they call the current thing, right? And so what normal people and people who haven't taken the red pill might call news or the progression of time or current events, this idea that things change and certain things are in the news, that instead is all an elaborate distraction. And so that, for example, oh, you thought COVID mattered? You thought a worldwide pandemic that killed millions of people? No, no, no. That's an NPC way of thinking. That was a distraction or something else. Or then it became, uh, of course, George Floyd's death, or it became a couple, I guess January 6th would be another example. And so they're saying, oh, this big thing in the news, or Ukraine, for example, oh, that's a ruse. And so now the balloon is kind of being treated the same way. And people are saying, As you said, Marjorie Taylor Greene is implying it's a distraction. So a distraction from what, right? Why? What is the implication? Why do they need to distract people from the train derailment? Going back to that. Well, this ties into... The longstanding conspiracy theory on the right, for at least the past year, that something is up with the food supply chain. Not just that it's COVID or what have you, or the avian flu, but that there's something nefarious. So, for example, one popular tweet I saw said, do you guys realize how much farmland is in Ohio? There are 75,000 farms. 90% of them are family farms. This has untold direct food supply chain impact. So the implication here is that the derailment was somehow meant to sabotage the food, which is if you kind of pull back the lens a little bit the further implication is that like the cabal is trying to cause chaos the other thing i i'd want to hit on here is if you search train derailment amish interesting thing here because the other conspiracy theory is that the derailment was an attempt to somehow undermine the amish community now there is sort of a a thing over the past few years on the right, the Amish really have been treated like these beloved mascots and sort of the American enclave that will save America. I wrote a story about how this farmer, this Amish guy who had repeatedly flouted federal food inspection laws and allegedly caused a food illness outbreak, that he became this kind of cause celeb on the right and it was featured on Tucker Carlson because these food regulators dared to ask him to not spread... Pasteurize his dairy. Yeah. yeah, exactly. And so this idea that like, oh, the infamous derailment was meant to stop the Amish because they're anti-woke and they won't get vaccinated vaccinated is also really, really prevalent out there.
0: Yeah. And I think it's interesting, right? This is part of a broader trend of the right will occasionally pick up some populist messaging that's also popular with the left, right? He, it, the left likes environmental issues, certainly calling attention to some of the labor issues that may have resulted in this train derailment. The right wants to hint in that direction, right? Say that there's a really big issue that's being undercovered. I would actually argue that you can look up information about this derailment on every single news site. There's, it's not entirely true that nobody is talking about this. A lot of people are talking about this. But they will take that sort of populist, I think, very legitimate anger and redirected away from the labor issues, away from the environmental issues, into the idea that middle America, that these hard scrabble blue-collar towns are being put in the eye of a globalist plot. And I, I, I think that's probably pretty savvy messaging. They understand that there is pretty, across the political spectrum, a lot of legitimate anger at this derailment. And instead they're saying that this is part of a larger plot that we've been warning you about. And so I think when they hint the weather balloons being a distraction. Well, you forget that, what, two weeks ago, Marjorie Taylor Greene was all about the weather balloon. She was bringing a weather balloon into the State of the Union, where I think she may have been dressed as a weather balloon with that big white coat. I'm not really sure what the underlying motive there was. But they are looking for, I hate to say it, current thing, the tie-in to take what is a very in-the-news-actually issue and make it relevant to their own long-running conspiracy theories. On that note, let's wrap up this episode of Fever Dreams from The Daily Beast. In future installments, we'll also be speaking to some amazing guests at The Daily Beast and Beyond, from politics to popular culture.
1: We hope you'll subscribe to us on your preferred podcast app and share the show on social media and at your family dinner table. If you'd like to follow us on Twitter, I'm at Will Summer, and Kelly is at Kelly Weil. That's W-E-I-L-L. Come say hi. This podcast is produced by Jesse Cannon with music by Brian Demeglio. Thanks so much for listening, and we'll see you next time.
0: Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince.